Podcasting from our secret compound at Silicon Slopes, Utah, overlooking the entire Utah Tech Corridor, this is the Utah CTO Show. Bite-sized interviews with Utah's tech leaders where we dig into the growth of the Utah tech scene, the stories behind some of the greatest local successes, and the secrets to growing tech leadership in Utah. And now, here are your hosts, Chris Jenkins and Brett Flake. Welcome back to the Utah CTO Show. I'm Brett. I'm here with Chris. Hey, guys. And today, we're really pleased to be here with Greg Wiggins, who is the Senior Vice President of Business Development at Cybage Software. Uh, now, Cybage is a company based out of Pune, India. Correct? It is. It's headquartered in uh, Pune, India. And but you are based here in Utah. I am based here. In and you Utah. are a Utah native? I am not a Utah native. But you've been here but a long time. <laughs> I have been here at least uh, close to 30 years now. Awesome. So. Yeah. Excellent. So you have, you've definitely been around the block here in Utah. Maybe tell us a little bit about your tech career starting out and where you're at now. Uh, tech career, I started off uh, at WordPerfect while I was uh, getting my computer science degree at BYU. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were looking at uh, hiring people. And I said, this sounds like a great company. It's growing fast. So I jumped in and went through and continued my, uh, my computer science degree. And afterwards, Stayed with WordPerfect. They obviously went through their whole Novell mm-hmm. business unit buyout, transitioning and reselling to Corel uh, as a part of that. So uh, most of my initial journey was with large enterprise type companies mm-hmm. until my next part of my journey, which was with a startup. So Awesome. Primarily, what types of positions were you holding when you were first starting out? So I started off in with WordPerfect. I actually started off in support. Awesome. And, and I actually transitioned from there into uh, testing and then testing into development, which has given me a unique insight and a unique appreciation for customers that I think just developers by themselves don't have Yeah. because I would hear their problems. And as a part of that, I would always look for ways of helping to ease their issues, whatever that was. In fact, even, you know, as I transitioned through support, I would convince developers to give me access to their code. Mm-hmm. Um, I, would debug th- <laughs> I would debug things for them and hand them back the code and say, here's where you make the code change to fix this problem. <laughs> and that's kind of how my journey started with, with WordPerfect and, and my transition into development. So My younger brother right now is trying to do the same thing, right? He's in his computer science degree. He's currently in support. And support, it works really closely with your testing team and works closely with, you know, the, the group that's debugging. And so I think that could kind of drive I think it's a great a way to start. I think it's a great way to start. It's also a great way to get your foot in the door. Don't worry about getting in at a specific level. Just get your foot in the door and typically you prove yourself and that's how you accelerate through the companies. That's one area that uh, we were talking to Trina just a few minutes ago kind of about this that um, there is a gap in sort of the understanding of what kinds of jobs there are in tech companies. And there are a lot of support jobs out there that are open. And people can kind of get, like you said, it's a great way to get your foot in the door. Along those lines, you've held several positions that are like CTO, VP of engineering, or director of of development. So who handed those titles to you on a silver platter? (laughs) (laughs) Is that how it went? That's how it went, right? (laughs) That's pretty close how how it went. Um, After Corel, I went on to go to a a startup company, Altiris. We were just starting out trying to accelerate the company. And that's that's where my journey into leadership and management actually accelerated. That was back in 1999, internet bubble. Yeah. 
And yeah. that's also where I got uh, my feet wet with the offshore uh, outsourcing as a part of that. We couldn't hire fast enough, and we needed to grow. We needed products out. We had a lot of ideas, a lot of things we needed to accomplish. We utilized offshore in addition to local talent to help us accelerate it. And with that acceleration, naturally came leadership roles, management roles, directing roles, and so on down that path. Now, it's not a career path that I sought. Yeah. (laughs) As a developer, that's what I wanted to do. That was where my love for computers took me down that path. And my dad back in the late 70s brought home a a TRS-80. And I don't know if you (laughs) you guys will remember that. Uh, (laughs) It was a Model 2, had four megahertz processor, had 32K RAM, big old eight inch floppy drive. And it was the love of my life at that point. So that's what kind of got me into computers. And I immediately knew what my career path would be, what my education was. So along that line, programming was all I wanted to do. I would spend easily 60 to 80 hour work weeks just coding. I would look outside and all of a sudden it would be dark <laughs> and I would go, where in the heck has the time gone? Yeah. And it's just something that I love to do. In fact, when they attempted to push management my direction, I told them, no, yeah. um, it's not something I wanted to do. And they convinced me that I was the person that needed to transition. And we negotiated. I said, <laughs> okay, if you'll allow me to do 75% coding, then I'll go ahead and move into management. And then they tricked me and then they started uh, giving me more projects to manage, right. and and then it went into director roles, and then down to 25%. And pretty soon, my coders and my team would tell me, don't touch the code anymore. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's too many dependencies, and <laughs> and you're breaking things. So, you But can, I still loved love that part of the Yeah, absolutely. You, you no longer have enough context, though, to... To, to be helpful to him, probably. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> that was still the love of my life. So hopefully my wife doesn't hear this. But <laughs> but uh, also just I would look for any excuse to code. So whether it was a proof of concept, an MVP, just writing tools, whatever I could do to kind of keep myself engaged into that part of the business is what kept me, I think, going and excited. Excellent. Yeah. But ultimately, those positions were essentially hard fought. There was a lot of hard work behind that before you were promoted to those types of positions. Yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of hours that, yeah. that goes in behind that in order to, to finally get to those positions. I mean, you know your teams very well. You know the company and the operations very well. So it's, it's easier to transition. Excellent. So tell us a little bit more about the offshore work that you did. You're saying at Altiris, you were trying to scale and you needed more support. And so you kind of went that route of how do we supplement our engineering team? Tell us sort of how you were able to to start that process, what you looked for, how you were able to succeed and really scale. Because we know Altiris did pretty well. You guys did a a really good job uh, building that company. Like what what was really good and and beneficial about that offshore work that you guys did? It was more luck than anything, Um, just connecting up, I think, with the right uh, outsourcing company and just having everything fall in line. Basically, since I love the business as well, new startup company, I was willing to invest any kind of time needed in order for my team offshore to be successful. So several trips yearly to go meet with them and late night calls, late, mm-hmm. early morning calls, and a lot of discussions to just help us drive us in the right direction is what ultimately led 
to the additional growth in the company. What was funny is all the projects that I had, a lot of it was outsourced, but no other projects were, <laughs> were outsourced within the company. And I kept telling them, this is a gold mine. You guys are missing out. Um, I'm accelerating way faster than you guys are. Well, um, and probably under smaller budget. Oh, yeah. I imagine. Yeah. Well, even with the same budget, you know, I can accelerate faster with more right. engineers. So it was just a way for me to do that. And finally, somebody realized what was going on and, and said, hey, we probably ought to try it in our projects. And and fast forward five or six years and you've got a, you know, 300 engineering team and a lot of projects developed and a company is interested in us is like Semantic, you know, right. seeking to buy us. Was that all in India, the offshoring outsourcing team that you had? Uh, no, we also had uh, Estonia, an Estonia group that, that was actually through an acquisition, but mm-hmm. they were also, I think, a pivotal part of our growth as well. What I found is, you know, as I've worked with different outsourcing companies and countries is that they each bring a different talent to the uh, industry. So mm-hmm. sometimes it's not just one. Sometimes you need multiples out there in order to help address the market. And just like I mentioned in 1999, where we had uh, serious supply and demand issues because the internet. We have those same or even greater issues now that we're experiencing, and we have to figure out how to address it or our growth here in Utah is going to get stifled. So we often talk to different engineering managers, CTOs, leaders who you know, somewhat shy away from wanting to outsource, right? They, they definitely feel like keeping it in-house is, is very important and critical to their business, that they won't be as successful if they were to outsource or, or offshore their development. I know you mentioned you put in a lot of hours and you spent a lot of time getting up early or staying late to be on those calls, but tell us a little bit more about what it really takes to be successful with an offshore or outsourced team. Communication is a big issue. When you have somebody that's on a completely opposite time zone, they're not sitting there in your building. They're not interacting with the various departments, so they're missing out on business discussions. So the information that they're getting is really through your contact. And me being that contact, it was important to make sure that I gave them all the information that they need. And I was willing to invest whatever time it needed in order to help accelerate that. That's typically, I would say, is the top priority to focus on whenever you're working with any outsourcing company is the the communication side of that channel and just making sure things are understood and and they're qualifying those back to you. So I wonder with that communication, does it always have to be somebody either staying up late or getting up early either here or on the other side of the world? Or are there maybe asynchronous communication methods that seem to, to work well? Well, you need loop feedback. That's always important. So asynchronous typically is a little bit more of a challenge. It takes longer Yeah. Um, in those kind of situations. You can have a delay of a day yeah. if you're not now, doing it right. <laughs> now, I always supplemented it by face-to-face as well, whether that was bringing people out or going there, because now you're forcing that whole f- communication channel for a long period of time, and it builds on itself. So yeah. you wake up the next morning, you continue. So th- those are things that I find people don't invest in that they should they think that they can do it all remote. And there's something to a face-to-face conversation. Mm. I mean, we've got that going on right here. So there's obviously <laughs> something to that, but yeah. uh, that kind of opens up also that communication. I had an experience once where I had a team in Latin America and I 
for the life of me on the phone could not understand them. It was very challenging. I mean, we had to have them repeat multiple times what they were saying, or we had to repeat ourselves multiple times and then uh, put a trip in the books to go down and visit with them and really go into all the details. And then I came back from that trip and every subsequent call on the phone, I could 100% understand what they were saying. And I think it had to do with now I could see in my mind's eye their faces, their expressions, how the accent played in English, right? That It made such a huge difference having met them in person. Yeah. And now with obviously video conferencing, that makes a huge difference it does. Um, yeah, as well. Absolutely. I mean, you get to see those facial expressions or confusion yeah, on their yeah. face. <laughs> and on a phone call, you didn't get to see confusion on their face. Yeah, that really helps. So my one experience with outsourcing, or at least experience that I was directly involved with, the thing that made it successful or that I felt like was the key to making it successful was incorporating each individual into our team rather than, you know, hey, I'm going to throw this over the fence or, or, you know, over the border or, or something to the outsource group or the offshore group. Rather, I'm going to incorporate them as if they were just one of the one full of the contributing member in the office. Yeah. yeah. Just, just, yeah. Just part of the company, part of the team. So I don't know if you have had that same experience, if you feel like that makes a big difference or it's a very leading question. I realize. <laughs> <laughs> I think it does. Yeah. Uh, it does make a difference. Obviously if, if you're treated as a, as a contractor, uh -huh. um, how you react and how you, how you even invest on, on the other end, I think makes a difference. If you feel like you're a part of the company, just like the people here, if that means a late night, over the weekend, whatever, you find that those people step up and do that. The company that I work with now and who worked for me in the past, that's what I would find. Yeah. All of a sudden, I would hear about, hey, you know, the guys just came in on a Saturday and Sunday to sharpen the saw on, on JavaScript because they knew that you needed some JavaScript work <laughs> that you were interested in doing. And it was like, oh, you know, that's fantastic. Or staying up late to address an escalation issue. And I didn't ask them to do that, but that would be what an employee would typically do here. Yeah. But having a group offshore actually step up and do that because they felt like they were part of the company and they had a, their own personal investment, it, it makes a huge difference. So I agree with you, Brett. You today are managing this company, doing this work, outsourcing. Have you seen companies fail at, uh, you know, they sign up, they think this is going to be great. It's going to be cheaper. It's going to be better. We're going to scale. Have you seen them fail? And if so, why are they failing? Yeah, I've seen them fail, even with the same company. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So working with the same company, it's not necessarily the company, it's a combination. At Alturis, that's probably a good example because we had scaled to that point of having a large number of engineers and a large number of projects that we were working on. And we found that the wrong kind of lead or the wrong kind of manager interacting with that did not fit well. I find a lot of it is some of the things that you've mentioned, and that is feeling like they're part of the group, getting that personal investment, having the right kind of personality of interaction, social skills, communication, wanting to make sure that the other team's successful plays a big part versus just treating them as a contractor, for example. You yeah. treat them as a contractor with less communication, helping them be successful. And sometimes those will fail because they don't have, have enough information to be successful. They're, they're guessing um, in a lot of these cases. So. so you've obviously worked with a lot of people with a lot of different backgrounds, you know, developers, QA, et cetera, and all over the world. So I guess I'm wondering, do like entry-level programmers or QA, do they 
experience the same problems overseas as the entry-level people here? Or are there different barriers or challenges that people are trying to overcome? I think it's more of the education side of things. There is some cultural, obviously, but I think some of it's just Mm -hmm. education-based. So if you find, for example, the, the people that go in and get a computer science degree, and understand the theories and, and the information behind the low levels and the object-oriented programming, you know, and the differences out there that actually gives that base, they think different is what I find. Then those that kind of go through the tech path have learned a specific language and they are more of a, an actor. So I think it's more of an education or more of background that differentiates the engineer mm-hmm. as a part of that. Some culture plays a part as well, but I think education probably plays a a little bit greater part. Yeah, that makes sense. Another kind of similar question, maybe companies here in Utah could potentially find it advantageous to hire, or maybe do you think that they would find it advantageous to hire outsource or, or offshore to up the diversity within their own company, the diversity of thought, diversity of background and whatnot? That can be advantageous, obviously bringing in people from diverse cultures that think slightly different. I mean, it's the same thing that we're trying to do with bringing women more into the engineering Mm -hmm. side of things. They think different. Yeah. And because of that, they bring a different kind of value to the equation and a different way of maybe attacking a problem. So you can get that benefit by bringing in cultures from from additional areas to, to get their thoughts on how to address a problem. So we like to help encourage engineering management here on the Utah CTO Show. We talked a little bit about this before we got into the episode here, Greg, but I'm curious just sort of the advice you might give to younger managers as they're kind of moving up in their careers about what it takes to be successful and how they can maybe leverage some of these things that you've experienced in your career and or whether it's outsourcing or whether it's taking educational courses, things like that. Like what can somebody do? today that is trying to go that path to ultimately make it to where they want to go? I would say, obviously, you want to make sure that's the path you want to take. Yeah. (laughs) Test it out. (laughs) Um, Because I would hate to have somebody go down a path and they find that's the wrong path. And I've actually talked to different people that have done that. And then they go back to just coders. Yeah. Because that's what they love to do. Those that want to go down, even down new technology paths, really what it comes down to in our industry is education, and mentors. What I've always tried to do as I go through and get new roles, like when they moved me to a CTO position, I'd never been a CTO before. And if, yeah. I, I started looking up uh, what the responsibilities of a CTO was on the website <laughs> to make sure, make sure I was going to do it right. So you do a lot of research. You educate yourself. I was constantly looking for ways of learning And I learned also early on the value of mentors and would connect up with mentors. I would go and seek them out. And I had many mentors throughout my career. And as I would try out new roles, even this new role is business development. That's brand new for me. So I'm educating myself. Yeah, (laughs) what that means. On, uh, yeah, how to be the best person within this role. And I have a mentor as a part of that. Now, he may not realize he's my mentor, but it's Greg Butterfield, <laughs> and, <laughs> and he, uh, I meet with him weekly, and he just provides so much guidance and background and, and value that you couldn't get just from reading a book. Sure. Uh, so that's something that, that I would recommend. 
For those people that are already at this level, what I would recommend is a reverse mentor as well. So if you've ever read Gen Z, then that's one of the books where they actually talk about the, the, the value that the young uh, Generation Z brings to the table as far as really understanding where industry is going. It's important to get back to your comment, Brad. You know, it's, it's good to get other perceptions into what they find important. They're going to tell you not to send that mail, that, that regular snail mail to us. <laughs> That's right. Don't write the letter. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that we like to do with each of our interviewees is give them opportunity to bring attention to any particular cause that uh, you want people to know about or potentially, you know, if you're looking to recruit or if you're Sybage maybe specifically wanting to help other people recruit, how can they contact you? What would you like to promote on the podcast? Well, I obviously have a passion for for Utah and, and the Utah technology sector. Mm-hmm. In fact, when Silicon Slopes came out, I thought that was brilliant. Finally, somebody was attempting to encapsulate what we were trying to communicate to the world, and that is we were an industry to be reckoned with. And as a part of that, I've tried to promote that back. Mm-hmm. And we were sponsors of Silicon Slopes, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, we're doing something for Innovate Utah, obviously contributing to this fantastic Utah CTO show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah thank you. Um, <laughs> we appreciate it. <laughs> hopefully it's going to provide some value there too. But but what I see is the biggest challenge that we face right now. And I just happened to, in fact, you got a chance to meet him. Brett was the uh, the deputy director of the GOED. Yeah, Ben Hart. Yeah. And he validated a lot of things that I'm seeing here in the Valley and that probably most people that will be listening would also confirm. And that is our growth is, has caused a, a serious issue with, with staffing. Yeah, we've brought the jobs to Utah, but yes. now we need to fill them. <laughs> but now we, need to, now we need to fill them. And as we've seen the, with, the, with the technology sector and with that supply and demand issue, it continues to drive up salaries. Yeah. And people are hopping around to, to get the higher salary, and, and we need to find a way of solving this mm-hmm. <laughs> before we get too expensive. <laughs> and anything that I can do uh, to help facilitate that, that's, that's really my passion right now is if we can't fill the growth, then we're going to stagnate. And I would hate for that to happen. Yep. Um, awesome. So how can people contact you? Well, the best way will probably be LinkedIn. You can go ahead and go to the, the Greg Wiggins uh, LinkedIn and just send me a quick message. Absolutely. Um, that's probably a, an easy way of doing that. Or, or write your letter. Or you can write me a letter. Yeah. <laughs> no. Well, Greg, we really want to let you know we really appreciate you coming out and we want to let our Listeners know that we really appreciate them. Thank you for supporting the podcast. If you haven't already, go ahead and try and leave us a five-star review or send us some feedback if you don't think that we're... Do they give six stars? Can you yeah. Give Greg will great. give us six. I'll give you six. I'll, I'll figure out how to do that. No, yeah. Thank you so much, Greg. We appreciate being here. This was a great, great interview. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks. guys. If your computing infrastructure is running in a cloud service like AWS or Azure you've likely sunk time into manually configuring and maintaining a monitoring tool. Tasks like understanding baselines, fine-tuning thresholds, and examining visualizations for defects require significant time and effort, taking time away from your most important priorities. 
wouldn't it be nice if you could automate this monitoring and alerting process? That's where Blue Matador comes in. Unlike all other monitoring tools on the market, Blue Matador eliminates the need to manually configure alerts. After a quick onboarding, Blue Matador instantly discovers all of your resources, automatically creates hundreds of alerts out of the box, and proactively notifies you of critical production issues. This saves you massive amounts of time and ensures that you'll always know the health of your cloud services. And right now, they are providing a special offer to our listeners here on the Utah CTO Show. Just head to bluematador.com slash show. Sign up for a free trial and integrate your AWS account or Kubernetes account for 14 days, and they will send you $100. They are so confident that you'll love their product that they are offering our listeners 100 bucks just to try it. So go to bluematador.com slash show to start your free trial today. Terms and conditions apply. 